You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome, everyone, to the new 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories podcast. Here you'll find a collection of Sherlock Holmes adventures, as well as the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's stories. Some from our archives at 1001 Classic Short Stories and 1001 Stories for the Road, and some newly produced, all here for your entertainment. On a cold and foggy day in May of 1886, a young doctor named Arthur Conan Doyle set aside his medical practice for the afternoon took pen in hand, and began to write a mystery novel. The doctor-turned-writer did not realize then what a lasting effect his works would have on literature. Hello, and welcome to two more new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. My name is Harry Bartell, and I'm proud to say that I was the announcer on the Sherlock Holmes radio series starring Basil Rathbun and Nigel Bruce. There are more true facts available about the real life of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle than all the fictitious conjectures on the written life of Sherlock Holmes. Yet it was Conan Doyle's great detective that brought the author worldwide fame. This saddened Conan Doyle, for he was really a romantic writer who wanted desperately to be recognized through his well-written historical romance novels. But it was not to be. The first short story to appear, A Scandal in Bohemia, was what made the name of Sherlock Holmes a household word. After writing but six short stories, Conan Doyle tired of the great detective. He wanted out. But Conan Doyle's agents, his book publisher, his reading public, and even the author's own mother continued demanding more and more Sherlock Holmes stories. Conan Doyle gave in, spending most of his time devising mystery plots for the great detective to solve, devoting only small periods of time on his other works, all of which he considered more important than Sherlock Holmes. Within months, the popularity of Sherlock Holmes spread worldwide. Conan Doyle was no fool. He knew which side his bread was buttered on, and he soon gave up his medical practice to spend all his time and energy on writing. Today, anyone can go into a bookstore and ask for a copy of Sherlock Holmes' stories. Try to do that with any of Conan Doyle's other great works. Such is the power and attraction of the greatest detective of them all, Sherlock Holmes. Now, let's listen to Basil Rathbun and Nigel Bruce in one of the original Conan Doyle mysteries, The Adventure of Thor Bridge. This episode from the life of Sherlock Holmes will be transmitted to our men and women overseas by shortwave and through the worldwide facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Petri Wine brings you... 
Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invite you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another exciting adventure he shared with his old friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. And while you're settling back comfortably in your chair, mind if I tell you about something I'd like you to share with me? It's a glass of Petri California Sherry. Of course, most people think of Petri California Sherry as the one wine that's really swell any time, but personally, I like a glass of that Petri Sherry just before dinner. You know, that's the time you're a little on edge, you've just finished your day's work, and you're waiting for your dinner, and, well, that's when you want to lean back and take it easy. And boy, that's the time a glass of Petri Sherry tastes like something just too good to be true. Try it. Petri Sherry is the perfect before-dinner wine. And incidentally, if you like your sherry dry, you know, not sweet, then you'll find that Petri Pale Dry Sherry is just made for you. The important thing is the Petri label, because when it says Petri, it always means good wine. And now for our weekly visit with our good friend and host, Dr. Watson. Good evening, Doctor. Good evening, Mr. Bartell. You're a bit late. I've been keeping some dinner hot for you. Here, pull up your chair and, and join me. That's very nice of you. Thanks, Doctor. Are you all set with tonight's story? Yes, my boy. I'm all set, as you call it. As a matter of fact, I was going over my notes on the case just before you arrived. Uh, last week, you hinted that a beautiful girl figured prominently in your adventure. That's quite right, Mr. Bartell. An extremely beautiful girl. In fact, I often used to say to Sherlock Holmes that if I'd been a little younger at the time, I might... Oh, well, you haven't come here to <laughs> listen to my personal reminiscences. You want to hear the story that I called The Problem of Tor Bridge. That's what you promised us, Doctor. How did it begin? On a windy morning in October... In, 18, in the 1890s, it was. As I was dressing, I observed how the last remaining leaves were being whirled away from the solitary plane tree which graced the yard behind our Baker Street house. I descended to breakfast, prepared to find my companion in depressed spirits, for, like all great artists, he was easily impressed by his surroundings. But, to my surprise, he was in an unusually gay mood. As I entered the room, he looked up at me and, with a, with a smile... My dear fellow, I hope you slept well. Splendidly, thank you, sir. Oh, I'm so glad. You're very solicitous this morning. I, I think you must have got a new case. <laughs> Am I right? The faculty of deduction is certainly contagious. Yes, I have a new case. After a month of trivialities and stagnation, the wheels revolve once more. Good. Tell me all about it. Well, as yet, there isn't much to tell. Have you ever heard of Neil Gibson? Neil Gibson? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Something to do with gold mining, isn't he? A great deal to do with it, my dear fellow. In fact, he's considered the greatest mining magnet in the world. About five years ago, he bought a large estate in Hampshire. Perhaps you've read of the tragic death of his wife. Oh, yes, of course. I remember the case now. She was murdered by a jealous governess who was in her employ, wasn't she? That point will be decided when the lady in question, uh, Grace Dunbar, I believe her name is, comes up for trial at the forthcoming Winchester Assizes. In any case, it's hard for me to see... What I can do for my client at this late date. Your client? Oh, yes, I forgot I hadn't told you. I'm getting into your involved habit of telling a story backwards. Mm. Better read this letter. Came this morning. Oh, let's have a look. Dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, Miss Dunbar is innocent. I can't see the finest woman in the world go to her death without doing everything possible to save her. I shall call on you at 10.30 tomorrow morning to discuss the matter yours faithfully, Neil Gibson. Good gracious me. 
There you have it, Watson. That is the gentleman I await. Uh, do you know anything about his dead wife? Only the, what I've been reading in the papers. Apparently, she was past her prime, which was the more unfortunate, as this Miss Dunbar, who superintended the education of the two young children, is reputed to be a very attractive young lady. <laughs> the eternal triangle, eh? Well, where did the murder take place? On Gibson's estate in Hampshire. His wife was found in the grounds nearly half a mile from the manor house, late at night, clad in her dinner dress with a shawl over her shoulders and a revolver bullet through her brain. Any weapon found near her? No, there were no clues found at the scene of the crime. What made them suspect the governess? Well, in the first place, there was some very incriminating evidence. A revolver with one discharged chamber, the caliber corresponding with a bullet in the dead woman's head, was found on the floor in Miss Dunbar's wardrobe. Oh, was it? Pretty damaging evidence, Holmes. Mm, so the coroner thought. And to make the case even blacker against Miss Dunbar, the dead woman had a note on her making an appointment at that very spot. And the note was signed by the governess. It seems obvious that the girl's guilty. And the motive's clear. Mr. Gibson would be a great catch for a young girl. Love, fortune, power, all dependent on one life. Possibly, Watson, but circumstantial evidence can be very misleading at times. Ah, as the gentleman in question, unless I'm very much mistaken, considerably before his time. I can see him from the window here. Formidable-looking fellow. Must be well over six foot tall. <laughs> Judging by the way he's wrenching at that doorbell, he's a man with a violent temper. Mrs. Hudson's opening the door to him now. Uh, meet him on the stairs, will you, old chap? It'll save Mrs. Hudson a journey. Uh, sure. Up here, sir. Thank you, Mr. Hudson. All right. Are you Mr. Sherlock Holmes? No, no, indeed. I'm his colleague, Dr. Watson. Uh, come along in, won't you? Mr. Neil Gibson, I presume? That's right. So you're the great Sherlock Holmes, huh? <laughs> the adjective is your own, Mr. Gibson. Sit down, won't you? By the way, you must speak uh, quite freely in front of Dr. Watson. Hmm. Well, I may as well begin by telling you that money means nothing to me in this case. You can burn it if it's any use to you in lighting the truth. Miss Dunbar is innocent, and it's up to you to prove it. Just name your fee. Uh, Mr. Gibson, my professional charges are on a fixed scale. I don't vary them, except when I omit them altogether. Very well. I imagine that you've read the newspaper reports of the coroner's inquest. Yes, very thoroughly. I don't see that I can add anything that'll help you. But if there are any questions you'd like to ask, I'll answer them. Oh, thank you. First, what were the exact relations between you and Miss Dunbar? I suppose you're within your rights in asking such questions, Mr. Holmes? We will agree to suppose so, shall we? Then I can assure you that my relations with Miss Dunbar were always those of an employer towards a young lady with whom he never conversed or even saw, except in the company of his children. Oh. Rather a busy man, Mr. Gibson, and I have no time or taste for aimless conversation. I wish you good morning. What the devil do you mean by this, Mr. Holmes? My dear sir, the case is difficult enough without your giving me false information. Meaning that I lie, sir? I was trying to express it as delicately as possible, but <clears throat> if you insist on the word, I won't contradict you. Why, you confound Don't be noisy, Mr. Gibson. Please don't be noisy. I find that after breakfast, even the smallest argument is unsettling. I suggest that a stroll in the morning air and a little quiet thought will be greatly to your advantage. I suppose I can't make you take the case, <clears throat> but you've done yourself no good this morning, Mr. Holmes. I've broken stronger men than you. No man ever crossed me and was the better for it. Good morning, Mr. Gibson. You've a great deal yet to learn. On my soul, Holmes, you run unusually severe with him. <laughs> I dislike liars, Watson, and I cannot tolerate arrogance, particularly when it's coupled with great wealth. Well, how did you know about his relations with the governor? I didn't. It was pure bluff. Bluff? <laughs> it certainly worked. Think he'll come back? Oh, of course he will. He needs my help too badly. He'll probably change his mind before he's halfway down the stairs. Come in. <clears throat> ah, <laughs> Mr. Gibson. I was just saying to Dr. Watson that I was certain you'd be back. I've been thinking it over, Mr. Holmes, and I feel that perhaps I was hasty in taking your remarks amiss. 
Just the same, I can assure you that the relations between Miss Dunbar and me really don't affect this case. Surely that is for me to decide, Mr. Gibson. You see, Mr. Gibson, my friend is like a doctor. He wants every symptom before he can give his diagnosis. Fire away, Mr. Holmes. What is it you want to know? The truth. I can give it to you in very few words. To begin with, I met my wife when I was gold mining in Brazil. Uh, your wife was Brazilian by birth, wasn't she, sir? Yes, doctor, and very beautiful. Well, to make a long story short, I fell in love and married her and brought her to England. After a few years, I realized that we had nothing, absolutely nothing, in common. And then I suppose this young governess, Miss Dunbar, arrived on the scene. That's right, Mr. Holmes. Well, the story should be obvious to you from there. You uh, fell in love with this girl, I suppose, sir. Who could help it? Did you suggest marriage to her? Yes. Though I knew that my wife would never divorce me. I see. Then you made an utterly insincere proposition to her. Now, look here, Mr. Holmes. I came to you on a question of evidence, not of morals. I'm not asking for your criticism. It's only the young lady's sake that uh, forces me to touch your case at all. Now, tell me, sir, uh, what is your own opinion as to Miss Dunbar's guilt? It's very black against her. I can't deny that. One explanation of the tragedy did come into my head, Mr. Holmes. I give it to you for what it's worth. Pray continue, Mr. Gibson. My wife was bitterly jealous. She was half crazy with hatred. She might have planned to murder Miss Dunbar, or we'll say to threaten the girl with a revolver and so frighten her into leaving us. There might have been a struggle in which the gun exploded and gone off and shot my wife, who was mm -hmm. holding it. Well, that possibility has already occurred to me. It's the only obvious alternative to deliberate murder. The revolver, Holmes, was found on the floor of the governess's wardrobe. Now, Mr. Gibson, I should like to examine your house and the scene of the murder as soon as possible. Certainly, Mr. Holmes. Sergeant Coventry of the local police is still down there. He'll give you any help you may need. Excellent. Watson, old fellow, I'm out of the timetable. We're catching the next fast train to Winchester. If I have to have someone else on the case, I'd rather have you, Mr. Holmes. The yard gets called in, then, then we local police loses all credit for success. <laughs> Generally gets blamed for the failures. Now I've heard that you play straight. <laughs> I never appear in the matter at all, Sergeant Coventry. If I can clear it up, I don't ask to even have my name mentioned. Well, that's handsome of you, I'm sure, and I, I know your friend Dr. Watson can be trusted, too. Oh, don't worry, my dear fellow. We won't steal any of your thunder. It's well, nice and friendly of you, Doctor. Well, come on, gentlemen, I'll walk you down to the bridge. That's where we found Mrs. Gibson's body. It's not far from the house here. Well, I must say, Mr. Gibson has a beautiful estate. It must be 60 or, or 70 acres. Oh, nearly twice that, Doctor. The woods back of the house there belongs to him, too. Mr. Holmes. Yes, Sergeant? There's a question I'd like to ask you. A question I wouldn't ask anyone else. Then please ask it. Don't you think there might be a case against Mr. Gibson himself, sir? I've been considering that possibility. That there, Miss Dunbar's a bit of all right. If you ask me, he wanted his wife out of the way, and the pistol she was shot with was his pistol, you know. Oh, uh, was, uh, was that fact uh, proven? Yes, Doctor. It was one of a pair that he had. One of a pair? Where's the other? Well, Mr. Gibson has a lot of firearms. We never quite matched that particular pistol. But the box was made for two. Well, if it was one of a pair, surely you'd be able to match it. Well, we have them all laid out at the house if you want to look them over. And we'll do that later. Ah, this, I presume, is Tor Bridge. That's right, sir. Found Mrs. Gibson's body lying right here at the approach to the bridge. I see. I gathered from the newspaper reports that the shot was fired at very close quarters. Yes, sir, very close. Near the right temple, wasn't it? 
just behind it, sir. How did the body lie, Sergeant? Oh, on its back, Doctor. No trace of a struggle, no marks, no weapon. The note from Miss Dunbar was clutched in her left hand. Clutched, you say? Yes, sir. We, we could hardly open the fingers to get at it. Ah, that's of greatest importance. It excludes the idea that anyone could have placed the note there after death in order to furnish a false clue. What did the note say, Sergeant? Little enough, Doctor. It just said, uh, I will be at Tor Bridge at 9 o'clock, and it was signed Grace Dunbar. Did Miss Dunbar admit writing it? Oh, yes, sir. What was her explanation? She wouldn't say nothing. Said she was saving her defense for the trial. Yes, it seems odd that Mrs. Gibson was still clutching that note. Seems perfectly natural to me. Oh, come now, old fellow. Argue the thing out logically. If the letter is genuine, it was certainly received sometime before the tragedy, say an hour or two. Why then was the dead woman still clasping it in her left hand? Why should she carry it so carefully? She certainly didn't need to refer to the note at all at the interview. Doesn't it strike you as rather strange? Well, now you put it that way, it does seem a little peculiar. Hello. What is this, Sergeant? Oh, you mean that chip out of that stone on the underside of the parapet of the bridge, sir? Yes, I noticed it. Uh, didn't think nothing of it, though. Well, it isn't a very large chip. Yes, but it's been done recently. That is how the stonework is white just here. It took some violence to do that. Hand me a cane, Watson, will you? Here you are, Bullock. Thanks. Yes. It's a hard knock. And in a curious place, too. But it's 15 feet from where we found the body, Mr. Dow. Yes, Holmes, I don't see how it could have any connection with Mrs. Gibson's well, murder. it hasn't. But it's a point worth noting. There were no footprints, you say, Sergeant? None, Mr. Holmes. The ground was as hard as iron. It's been a very dry summer, and we haven't had any rain to speak yes, of this. Yes, pity. Mm. Well, Sergeant, I'm much obliged to you, and now I think we'll get back to the house. Right. Uh, Cesar will share where the firearms are, sir. Oh, uh, who is Cesar? Funny kind of a bloke, Brazilian he is. Brazilian, eh? Like Mrs. Gibson? Yes, Mr. Holmes. Uh, comes from the same town that she does, as a matter of fact. Something very fishy about him, if you ask me. Now, if you'll excuse me, gentlemen, I'm going to take a little stroll around the grounds. You started me on a new train of thought in this case, Mr. Holmes. Oh, I'm delighted, Sergeant. I'll get back to the house. <laughs> These are all the firearms in Mr. Gibson's possession, eh, Cesar? Mm. Except for the revolver that is missing from the case. Yes, so I say I see him. Well, I've never seen such a collection of guns and revolvers in my life. Mr. Gibson had many enemies, senor. He always sleep with a loaded pistol beside his bed. She's a man of great violence. There have been times when all of us were afraid of him. Did you ever witness physical violence towards Mrs. Gibson? No, senor. I cannot say that I have but I have heard him say many terrible things to her. She would taunt her in front of we servants. I have heard him do it many times. Thank you, Cesar. That will be all. Muy bien, senor. You know, Holmes, I still think the case against Miss Dunbar looks very black. I should agree with you if it were not for one fact, the finding of the revolver in her wardrobe. On the soul, Holmes, that seems to me the, the strongest evidence of all. I think not, old chap. Huh? We must look for consistency. Where there is a, a want of it, we must suspect deception. I don't quite follow you. Suppose for a moment that we visualize you in the character of a woman who in cold, premeditated fashion is about to murder a rival. You've planned it. A note has been written. The victim has come. You have a, a weapon. The crime is well done. It has been workmanlike and complete. 
You mean to tell me that after carrying out so crafty a crime, you'd be so stupid as to forget to fling the incriminating revolver to the bottom of the stream? Or perhaps in the uh, dense reeds that border it? Would you carefully carry it home and put it in the first place that would be searched? Your wardrobe? Well, perhaps in the excitement of no, the moment, one... No, no, my dear chap, I won't admit that's even possible. When a crime is coolly premeditated, then the means of covering it are coolly premeditated well, also. Then if Miss Dunbar didn't shoot Mrs. Gibson, who the devil did? I hope I can give you the answer to that question, Watson, when we've made one further visit. Oh, Lord, where are we going now? To prison, old chap. Prison? Yes, we're going to Winchester Prison to call on Miss Dunbar. I'm certain that the key to this strange mystery lies in her hands. <laughs> You'll hear the rest of Dr. Watson's story in just a few seconds. Just time enough for me to remind you that the easiest way to make good food taste better is to serve that good food with a good Petri wine. If you like a red wine, well, you want a Petri California Burgundy. If you'd rather have a white wine, then you want a Petri California Sauterne. But red or white, Petri Burgundy or Petri Sauterne, you're choosing a dinner wine that's sure to turn a simple meal into a feast. Your whole family and all your friends will love Petri, the wine that makes good food taste better. And now back to Dr. Watson and tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure, The Problem of Tor Bridge. Well, uh, Doctor, did you go to Winchester Prison and see Miss Dunbar? We did, Mr. Bartell. An hour later, I found the two of us sitting in a dank and gloomy cell, talking to one of the most beautiful girls that I've ever seen. Her bright, flashing eyes and her air of quiet confidence seemed sadly out of place in such a setting. Holmes spoke to her quietly, soothingly. Miss Dunbar, tell us of your true relations with the dead woman. She hated me, Mr. Holmes. She hated me with all the passion of her distorted mind. Please tell us exactly what happened on the evening of Mrs. Gibson's death. Well, I, I received a note from her in the morning. A note imploring me to meet her at the bridge after dinner that night. She said she had something important to say to me. Did you keep that note, Miss Dunbar? No, Doctor. She, well, she asked me to destroy the note, so I burned it in the schoolroom grate. I saw no reason for such secrecy, but... Well, I, I did as she asked. Mm, and yet she kept your reply very carefully. It's interesting. Tell me what happened when you met her that night. When I reached the bridge, she was waiting for me. I, I won't tell you what she said, but she poured out her whole wild fury and burning horrible words. I didn't answer. I couldn't. It was dreadful even to look at her. She was like an insane woman, standing there screaming disgusting insults at me. I put my hands to my ears and rushed away. Where was she standing when, when you left her? Within a few yards of the spot where her body was found later. And yet, presuming she met her death shortly after you left her, you heard no shot. No. No, I heard mm. nothing. But I was so upset, Mr. Holmes, that I rushed straight back to my room. Did you leave it again that night? Yes. When the alarm came that Mrs. Gibson was dead, I ran out with the others. Did you see uh, Mr. Gibson? Yes, Doctor. He had just returned from the bridge when I saw him. He had sent for the doctor and the police. Uh, this pistol that you found in your room, had you ever seen it before? Never, Mr. Holmes, I swear it. When was it found, Miss Dunbar? Next morning, when the police made their search. 
It was on the floor of my wardrobe where I keep my shoes. Mm, you've no idea how long it had been there. Well, it hadn't been there the morning before. How do you know? Because I had tidied up the wardrobe that day. I see. Then someone must have come into your room and placed the pistol there in order to incriminate you. I'm certain of it. Oh, when, uh, when could they have done that? Well, it, it, it could have been at mealtimes or when I was in the schoolroom with the children. Yes. Miss Dunbar, on examin examining the scene of Mrs. Gibson's death, I noticed that a piece of stonework on the underside of the parapet of the bridge had been broken away. Can you suggest any possible explanation for that? Oh, surely it must have been a mere coincidence, Mr. Holmes. Possibly. But why should it appear at the very time of the tragedy and at the very place? Could it possibly be the... Why, yes, of course. Idiot. Why didn't I think of it before? Come along, Watson. Where are we going, Holmes? Back to Thorbridge, old fellow. As fast as we can get there. What have you found out, Mr. Holmes? The answer to this mystery, I hope, my dear young lady. You will get news before the day is out. And meanwhile, take my assurance that the clouds are lifting and that the light of truth is breaking through. Mr. Holmes, you're soon back here. What have you found out? Turn on a few moments. Uh, you got my message? Oh, uh, yes, sir. Here you are. Ball of twine. What you want it for, I can't imagine. Uh, you'll soon see, Sergeant. Uh, Watson, I uh, have some recollection that you usually go armed on these excursions of ours. Yes, I'm carrying my revolver. Why? Uh, give it to me, old chap, will huh? you? Thanks. Thank I, I believe your revolver may have a very intimate connection with the mystery we're investigating. <laughs> you're joking. Now, Watson, I'm very serious. Huh? I have a test to make. If the test is successful, Miss Dunbar will be free before nightfall, and the test will depend on the conduct of this revolver of yours. Yeah, I'll take the precaution of unloading it. Uh-huh. There we are. Now, Sergeant, ball of twine, please. Wish I knew what you was up to, sir. I tie one end of the twine like this to the handle of the revolver. So... Sergeant, see if you can find me a heavy stone, will you? Oh, Roger, sir. Holmes, what are you doing? Trying to reconstruct the killing of Mrs. Gibson. But you've seen me miss the mark before, Watson. I have an instinct for such things, and yet it has sometimes played me false. It seemed a certainty when it first flashed across my mind in Miss Dunbar's cell. But one drawback of an active mind is that one can always conceive alternative explanations which would make our scent a false one. And yet, oh, well... We can but try. Here's a nice stone, Mr. Holmes. Thank you, Sergeant. Yes, now, sir. I tie the other end of the twine to the stone. Wait a minute. Like that. Splendid. Uh, Sergeant, will you please take the stone and stretch the twine across the parapet of the bridge there so that the stone will swing just clear of the water on the other side of the bridge? Right, sir. I'll stand on the spot where Mrs. Gibson's body was found. That's it, Sergeant. Over the parapet. How's that, Mr. Holmes? The stone swinging about eight feet above the water. Splendid. Now, Watson, watch closely. I raise the revolver to my head. Careful, Holmes, careful. Nobody, old chap's not loaded. Now, let us imagine I am the late Mrs. Gibson. I raise the revolver to my head and fire it. Instantly, my fingers release their grip and... There's your answer, Watson. Great, Scott, the revolver flashed back out of your hand. Struck the parapet of the bridge and then the weight of the stone flipped it over into the water. Was there ever a more exact demonstration? Come on, old fellow. You're a blooming magician, Mr. Holmes. That's what you are, a blooming magician. Look at that. Observe the second chip on the stonework of the parapet here. Same size as the first. And then the murder of Mrs. Gibson... It wasn't murder at all. It was suicide. What? We can follow the various steps quite clearly. A note was extracted very cleverly from Miss Dunbar, a note which made it appear that she had chosen the scene of the crime. Mrs. Gibson, in her anxiety that the note should be discovered, somewhat overdid it by holding it in her hand to the last. 
That alone should have excited my suspicions earlier than it did. So she stole one of her husband's revolvers and... planted and... the other one in Miss Dunbar's wardrobe. Exactly. After discharging one of the cartridges, which she could easily do in the woods without attracting suspicion, she then went down to the bridge, where she contrived this exceedingly ingenious method of getting rid of her weapon. When Miss Dunbar appeared, she used her last breath in pouring out her hatred, and then, when the girl had left, carried out her terrible purpose. Then the missing revolver... You'll find it uh, with the aid of a grappling hook at the bottom of the stream, and also the stone and the string, uh, with which this vindictive woman attempted to, to disguise her own crime and fasten a charge of murder on an innocent victim. Yes, Sergeant, and don't forget while you're at it that my revolver's down there, too. Oh, don't worry, Doctor. I'll get some grappling hooks right away. <laughs> I must say, Holmes, you've solved this case brilliantly. Quite brilliantly. Uh, I disagree, old chap. And I fear that you will not improve my reputation by adding the case of the Torbridge mystery to your annals. Oh, nonsense. But that's ridiculous. Oh, no, it isn't, old boy. I've been sluggish in my mind and wanting in that mixture of imagination and reality, which is the very basis of my art. I confess that the chip in the stonework was a sufficient clue to suggest the true solution, and I blame myself and not having attained it sooner. Well, Holmes, personally, I agree with the sergeant's opinion of you. Oh? What was that, old fellow? You're a blooming magician, Mr. Holmes. That's what you are, a blooming magician. Oh. Well, Doctor, Holmes really was a magician. That is, if you did find Mrs. Gibson's revolver and your own in the oh, stream. Oh, you found them all right. I don't think I'll tell you the story otherwise, do you? Uh, what do you take me for, anyway? Well, now that you ask, I'll tell you. I take you for a very charming gentleman, a wonderful oh, storyteller, yeah. and a fine host. Oh, well, I do, I really, I... Well, you are a gentleman of the old school. Well, and you do old. tell a fine story. <laughs> you flatter me, you... Uh... And you are a perfect host. Oh, that meal we had tonight was wonderful. Oh, it was, eh? And, um, that, that wine, what kind was it? It was Petri wine, and you know it. <laughs> and I should have known that you were leading up to something. Mr. Bartell, you should be ashamed of yourself. You will do anything to get a chance to talk about Petri wine. Oh, I can't say that I blame you. Well, honestly, Doctor, I meant everything I said. But you don't really want me to stop talking about Petri wine, do you? After all, it's worth talking about, isn't it? What other wine is made with a loving care that goes into Petri wine? Don't forget, Petri wine is made by the Petri family. Winemaking is their business. Why, they've been making wine for generations, handing down from father to son, from father to son, all their skill and knowledge and experience. You can be sure the Petri family really knows plenty about the fine art of turning luscious grapes into delicious wine. That's why, whether you want a wine for before dinner, with dinner, or for any time, you can't go wrong with a Petri wine, because Petri took time to bring you good wine. And now, Dr. Watson, what new story are you planning to tell us next week? Well, next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm going to tell an adventure that Holmes and I had amid the oriental magnificence of a Maharaja's palace in India. India? Sounds intriguing. Uh, what were you and Sherlock Holmes doing out there, Doctor? Well, you'll have to wait until uh, next week for the answer to that question, my boy. But I can tell you that it was one of the weirdest problems that we ever had to solve. I call the story The Vanishing Elephant. <laughs> Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure is written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher 
and is adapted from the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Problem of Tor Bridge. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Petri family took the time to bring you such good wine. So when you eat and when you cook, remember Petri wine. To make good food taste better, remember... Pet, pet, Petri. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Of course, many of you are already familiar with this intriguing mystery story. But this is the first time in over 40 years that Basil Rathbun and Nigel Bruce have had the pleasure of once again entertaining you with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's original story, The Adventure of Thor Bridge. This is Harry Bartell. I'll be right back with more notes on Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and another new adventure of Sherlock Holmes. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Petri Wine brings you Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invites you to listen to Dr. Watson tell about an exciting adventure he shared with his old friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. And I've got something to talk about, too. Now that the poultry shortage is over and you can get chicken again, you ought to treat yourself to the best meal in the world. Fried chicken, southern style, accompanied by a chilled glass of Petri Sauterne. Me, oh my, is that something. You know, Petri Sautern is a wonderful mealtime wine. It's a white wine, the color of pale, pale gold. And Petri Sautern is delicate in flavor, sort of subtle and kind of intriguing. Well, just wait till you taste it. You'll really love it with that fried chicken. Oh, and I'll tell you something else. It's wonderful with fish. If you haven't tried fish or any kind of seafood, together with Petri Sautern, well, I hate to say this, but you don't know, folks. You just don't know. So how about finding out? Just pick up a bottle of Petri Sauterne on your way home tomorrow. It's a Petri wine, so you know it's good. 
And now let's see if our old friend Dr. Watson's expected. He's out on the patio. Dr. Watson? Out here this evening, my boy. Oh, swell idea, Doctor. It certainly is a beautiful night. It certainly is. Draw up a chair and make yourself comfortable. That's it. You, uh, you care for some of my tobacco? <laughs> I think I'll stick to a cigarette, thanks. Well, Doctor, all ready for tonight's adventure? Yes, Mr. Bartell, I'm all ready. And a strange story it was. A very strange story. How did it begin? Stormy December night in 1900 with the rain pelting against the Baker Street windows... Or perhaps with you and the great Sherlock Holmes rattling along in a cab beside the foggy waterfront chasing some desperate criminal. <laughs> you make quite a good storyteller yourself, Mr. Bartell. No, no, no. The adventure, I tell you, took place many, many thousands of miles afield from our Baker Street headquarters. To be exact, in the Indian city of Parbutipur, about 200 miles north of Calcutta. It must have been a mighty important case that made you both travel that far. It certainly was, my boy, yes. It was announced in the, in the summer of the... 1894, I remember, that Holmes received an urgent summons from the Maharaja of Parbutipur. After five weeks at sea, we reached Calcutta, and a few days later found ourselves on the veranda of our hotel in Parbutipur. As we sat there talking to the Maharaja's brother, Robert Singh, we could hear the faint throb of native drums and the haunting wail of an Indian loop coming from the bazaar. And so, gentlemen, I thought that before I took you over to my brother's palace, I would tell you something of the problems that beset him. An excellent idea, Mr. Singh. Uh, yes, indeed, sir, particularly as you've just told us that your brother, the Maharaja, is not in the best of health. Uh, just so, Dr. Watson. Interviews tie him, and in any case, his command of the English language is not so extensive as mine. And now, sir, the problem, if you please. As to the exact problem, Mr. Holmes, I am not completely informed. My dear brother has not seen fit to confide his entire troubles, even to me. In fact, until your arrival yesterday, I did not even know that you had been sent for. But I can tell you that his worries are centered on the safety of the white elephant of Parbutipur. White elephant? Possibly you are not aware that white elephants actually do exist. Oh, yes, though I understand that they're extremely rare. Oh, extremely, Mr. Am I right in thinking that in the East, white elephant is considered sacred? Quite right. Pray continue, sir. Well... In 1750, the first white elephant was presented to my great-great-grandfather, and with it came a legend. The legend that the Maharaja's rule would be happy, healthy, and successful only as long as the elephant flourished. If the animal were to die, then the reign would come to an end, and the Maharaja was doomed to a sudden death. Mr. Singh, who was responsible for the origin of this legend? Oh, a good and wise man who traveled from the mountains beyond Nepal. He it was who brought... The first elephant to my great-great-grandfather. And how has the legend worked out in actual practice, sir? Its prophecies have come frighteningly true, Dr. Watson. Oh? The first elephant was killed by his mahout, his own keeper, after my illustrious ancestor had dismissed man for incompetence. A week later, my great-great-grandfather was himself killed in a native uprising. And so it has gone on, gentlemen, since then. Amazing, amazing. When the elephants have died, and they have always died, the Maharaja of Vaputipur has died a violent death soon after. And as each new Maharaja has succeeded to the title, the wise man from the beyond the mountains has appeared, and with him, a new sacred white elephant. The last appeared four years ago when my brother invented the title. Oh, but it can't still be the same man, sir. Well, why not, Doctor? Well, <laughs> I mean to say, 
That'd make him a couple of hundred years old. Mm, a trifle less, I fancy, Doctor. <laughs> really, my dear sir. Seems to me your story's the wrong way round. Men don't live to such an age, whereas elephants are noted for their length of life. That's true, Watson, but apparently not the sacred white ones of Papa de Poor. Uh, Mr. Singh, uh, in the event that uh, your brother's death, who would become the Maharaja? <laughs> I should, Mr. Holmes. Oh, I can see what you are thinking, sir. The next in line to succeed to the title would have an excellent motive for wishing animal death. <laughs> the logic is inescapable. The thought had no personal implications, I assure you. Well, I'm very anxious to see this fabulous animal. The sacred white elephant is never seen except at the yearly festival that celebrates another anniversary of the Maharaja's rule. So the animal is only seen once a year, eh? Yes, Mr. Holmes. And when is the next anniversary, may I ask? In two weeks' time. Oh, our arrival seems to have coincided very nicely with the ceremony. Yes, Watson, a fact that I'm sure is not coincidental. Well, Mr. Singh, I'm very glad that you've told us the legend of the sacred white elephant, and now I suggest that you take us to the palace. I'm most anxious to make the Maharaja's acquaintance. This is the council chamber, gentlemen. If you will wait here a moment, I will go and see if my brother is well enough to receive you. Very well, sir. I'm not easily impressed, but this palace is absolutely staggering in its magnificence. Yes, it does rather take one's breath huh? away, doesn't it? It does. This floor is of the finest marble, and unless I'm much mistaken, that magnificent rug is a genuine bacardi. Yes, by Jove, it is. I can swear that the staircase we mounted a moment ago had railings of solid gold. You did, old chap. It is a country of paradoxes, where opulence beyond the dreams of Midas rubs shoulders with the direst poverty. And yet, looking at a Palace like this, it's not hard to see why India is called the brightest jewel in the diadem of the British Empire. Good Lord, what, what's that? That is an elephant trumpeting. Oh, yes, yes of course. Uh, was it the sacred white one? Undoubtedly. You will recall the Maharaja's brother told us it's the only one at the palace. Cheers. It's an odd sound. Yes, yeah, a very comforting one. The animal seems to be in the best of health. Who waits in the Maharaja's council room? Who gracious me? You gave me a start. I didn't hear you come in. My friend and I are waiting for an audience with His Highness. No one can hold audience with the Maharaja. Please to leave. Now look here, my good fellow. Watson, please. please to leave. Watson. What? We've traveled 12,000 miles to see the Maharaja, sir, at his request. In any case, his brother is with him now arranging an audience. I am Mada, Maharaja's physician and chief counselor. And I tell you, you cannot hold audience today. And I tell you that I haven't the slightest intention of leaving the palace without seeing him. You defy the authority of mother? Saila! Now I warn you that if I have any... Oh, I'm glad you're back, Mr. Singh. This fellow told us that we couldn't see your brother. Furthermore, he seems to labor under the misapprehension that he can have us thrown bodily out of the palace. Mother, you do not understand. These are the gentlemen my brother wishes to see. From England he has sent for them. It was against my counsel they were summoned. No good will come of this. Follow me, gentlemen. My brother, the Maharaja, will see you now. But please do not stay with him too long. He is far from well. Mr. Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Watson... I'm so happy you have arrived here safely. It was great imposition to ask you to travel so far. Oh, not at all, sir. I only hope we can prove of material assistance to you. Ranji? Yes, Robert? 
I wish you would permit Dr. Watson to examine you. I just was about to suggest myself, sir. In fact, I, I brought my medical bag along just in case. Mother would not approve. Mada not believe in oxidental medicine. I do not trust Nada. I do not think he wishes you to get well. Please, Ranji, let the doctor examine you. Very well. But you not tell Nada. And now, um, what seems to be the, the trouble, Your Highness? Uh, my, my eyes. They torture me. Night and day, they torture me. Yes, I notice they seem very inflamed. Now, let me take a look at them. Mm, yes, 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 yes. Now, uh, open them a little wider, please, sir. I throb, burn, night and day. Night, day, burn. Mm, the car is distinctly reddened. However, this isn't anything very, very serious, sir. What you're suffering from is a case of what we call conjunctivitis. What you do relieve pain, Doctor? Oh, some eye drops will give you relief in no time, sir. I have some here in, in, in my bag. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Perhaps medicine will help. Yes, yes, I'm sure it will, sir. Here you are, now. this small bottle and an eyedropper. Uh, this is, is an eyedropper. Uh, just put a few drops in the corner of each eye, and I'm sure that you'll, you'll get some relief in no time at all. Thank you, Dr. Watson. You think there is nothing seriously wrong, Doctor? Mother gave it as his opinion that my brother's eyesight was in serious danger. Upon my saying so, I think it more likely that my medical knowledge exceeds his. I can assure you there's nothing seriously the matter with your brother's eyes, Doctor. I'm happy you say so. <sighs> now you will please excuse me while I take medication and rest a little. We discuss my problems later. Quarters already prepared for you in palace. You do not mind, Mr. Holmes? Not at all, sir. Though in the interim, I should like to employ my time to the pool by inspecting your sacred white elephant. No. No, that I cannot allow. I must talk to you first. I think, sir, you will do well to give me permission to see the animal. I already have my suspicions as to your reason for bringing me here, and it will be best if I'm completely informed when we have our discussion. Very well. Can do no harm. Here. Take Ring. Show Ring to Sucro. He's keeper of animal. Sucro will let you into Elephant House when he sees Ring. Thank you, sir. And please rest comfortably. I'm sure that your worries are nearly at an end. Come on, Watson. this was the elephant house. Why in thunder doesn't the keeper open the door? I imagine because his mind is preoccupied with music. Knock again, old fellow, will you? Uh-huh. He heard us that time. Yeah, about time. We must have been knocking here for five or six minutes. Well, I'm sad. He am Maharaja said, Kumko astimatic dio. Holmes, the Maharaja's ring certainly seemed to do the trick. He didn't want to let us in until you showed it to him, oh, did he? Good and faithful <laughs> servant, our friend Sukro. Uh, what's happened, Holmes? 
white elephant has disappeared, Watson. Disappeared? That's ridiculous. Elephants don't just disappear. Dear Garik, sir. Maharaja Saad Kibolo. Kali Umkabolo. Potacha, sir. Potacha. Where's he going? I told him to go to the Maharaja and give him the news. But he was to tell it to no one else. But Holmes, this is ridiculous. We heard the animal trumpeting here less than half an hour ago. How can an elephant be spirited away in that amount of time? That's what we have to find out, my dear fellow. I've often heard the Indian rope trick. Now we have a first-hand opportunity of solving a new mystery, the problem of the disappearing elephant. Holmes, this is farcical. We spent half an hour searching this elephant house. After all, an elephant isn't exactly insignificant. I doubt if you're going to find it under those boards in the corner over there. True, Watson, but nonetheless, there are interesting clues to be observed. Clues? What clues? Come over here, old chap. Bloodstains. It's got suggesting that's elephant's blood. It's hard to say, though I would venture the opinion that it would require the blood of several human corpses to produce an equivalent amount of blood. In any case, you will notice that the stains are dried and old. Hello? That must be the elephant keeper back from the palace. Dr. Watson. His mother, the Maharaja's physician. Mr. Holmes, Dr. Watson, at once you must come back to the palace. What long, sir? This is the Maharaja. Death has come to him. Dead? Great heavens. Exactly what happened? Sukro, keeper of the elephant, came to the Maharaja. He said he had a most important message to deliver. He had. I told him to deliver it. Then what happened? A few moments later, I heard cries. I went to Maharaja's room... And found him in delirium. He was saying elephant having disappeared, his brother, and I tried to give comfort to him, but we could do nothing. His breathing became more and more labored. Finally, it stopped altogether. So the doom of Pambodipur is fulfilled once again. The elephant is gone and the Maharaja's reign is ended. Come on. We must go to the palace. Yes, I must examine the body at once. You're certain it was a natural death, Mr. Mudder? Positive, Mr. No Holmes. symptoms of poisoning, for example? Mr. Holmes... I have read some of your sensational stories in which obscure deaths are attributed to a subtle oriental poison unknown to Western science. I can assure you that if the Maharaja has been poisoned, it has been caused by no poison known to me. When did he last eat? Over uh, eight hours ago. Possibly died of shock, home, shock and hysteria, when he knew that the elephant had vanished. Yes, it's possible, but it's murder just the same. Murder? Why do you say that, Mr. Holmes? Because whoever caused the elephant to disappear did it with the deliberate intention of ending the Maharaja's reign. A diabolical plot, and one that I intend to overcome before this day is out. Dr. Watson's story will continue in just a second, so all I'm going to say is, if you like a swell red wine with your dinner, well, then you should know about Petri California Burgundy. Petri Burgundy is a rich, hearty red wine that's just wonderful with hamburger and beef stew and pot roast and chops and oh, just about any meat or meat dish you can think of. And, of course, if you can get hold of a steak or a prime rib, well, then you've just got to serve that with Petri Burgundy. Petri Burgundy is a swell mealtime wine. The best friend a good meal ever had. No kidding. And now back to tonight's new Sherlock Holmes adventure, The Case of the Vanishing Elephant. Tell me, Doctor, did you examine the Maharaja's body? Yes, of course I did, Mr. Bartell. Holmes was convinced that the Maharaja had been murdered, but I could find no trace of foul play. After my examination, I joined Holmes in our quarters, and I gave him my opinion. Found out anything? 
Looks like natural death to me, Holmes. No traces of poison? None that I could see. Of course, it's hard to be certain without an autopsy. Did you suggest one? Yes, but the new Maharaja won't hear of it. It's against their religion, apparently. Yes, I was afraid of that. Meantime, I've been conducting a cross-examination of some of the palace servants. Oh? What do you find out? Principally that all of them heard the elephant trumpeting this morning. Did any of them suggest how the animal might have been smuggled to the palace ground? They insisted that such a feat would be impossible without their knowledge. Well, what's our next move, Holmes? To interrogate the one person who I'm sure can give us the true story of the elephant's disappearance. It's Keeper. Remember, we haven't seen him since he took the message to the palace. I suggest we return to the elephant house and have a, a persuasive talk with him. This must be the house. It's only one that's near the elephant pen. Ramshackle-looking place, isn't it? Extremely. Sucro! Sucro! Don't tell me that he's vanished, too. <laughs> this is beginning to get on my nerves. Sucro! I think under the circumstances, we'll take the liberty of entering. Sucro! Look, Holmes. Look on the floor. Ah, we're too late. Good Lord. What a horrible sight. His throat's been cut. Obviously, another murder. He knew the secret of the vanishing elephant. Let's have a look around. Uh-huh. Look, I was quite a, quite a musician. Look at this weird assortment of instruments. Made lute. Well, we heard him playing that today as we approached the elephant house. What's this? It looks like a sort of giant megaphone. It's a musical instrument of some kind. Observe the mouthpiece here. Let's see what kind of noise it makes. Great. That instrument sounds exactly like, like an elephant trumpeting. Of course. Thomas Carl, why didn't I think this before? Come on, Watson, back to the palace as fast as your legs can carry you. The mystery is solved. <laughs> You have solved the problem of the missing elephant, Mr. Yes, Holmes. And also the cause of your brother's death and Sucro's murder. Indeed. That is very important news. Uh, won't you both sit down, please? Oh, thank you, sir. I get... uh, please proceed, Mr. Holmes. Thank you. At first, the elephant did not vanish today. The beast must have died a natural death months ago. All that happened today was that I discovered its absence. Are you suggesting that my brother knew the beast was dead? I am, sir. But he was afraid to publish the news. He knew that his rule would fall into a state of chaos if the fact were known. You yourself, sir, have told us how strong is the native belief in this legend. Oh, how did he dispose of the elephant? Unobtrusively, over a period of time, the bloodstains in the elephant house would indicate that the animal had been cut up into disposable fragments, which could be removed by the faithful sucro without attracting suspicion. All this time, though, the elephant horn was blown at suitable intervals to indicate that the sacred animal was still alive. But if the Maharaja knew the beast was dead, why did he die of shock when he received the news? I think the answer to that question, Dr. Watson, would be that my brother died of shame when he knew that his imposture had been discovered. Oh, oh, oh. A little far sir, if you don't mind my saying so. Now, I'm certain the reason your brother brought me to your country was to reveal that imposture to me. He knew the day was coming soon when he must show the elephant to his people. The festival would have been held in two weeks' time, I think you told us, sir. I imagine that he wanted me to devise a method of smuggling a new white elephant into the palace grounds before that time. Tell me, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, 
Why did my brother die today? Because he was murdered. Just as Sucro was murdered later. Murdered? Oh, oh. oh very ingeniously. Uh, by poison, but not as you might expect by any subtle Western poison. No, one of the uh, most recent of Western poisons was used. A poison unknown to Oriental science. Delirium, followed by a strangulated breathing, is highly typical of the newly discovered poison, hyosiamine. He hadn't eaten for eight hours. True, Watson, but you see this, um, hyosiamine was administered to, uh, an eyedropper? Good heavens, an eyedropper. The poison penetrates with unusual ease through the membranes of the eyes, if you will recall. Yes, you're right, but Joey does. Must have been that physician fellow, Ma, Ma, whatever his name is. No, my dear chap. Uh, this has been a case of confusions. Let's do a little clear thinking now, shall we? We, uh, we were deceived by the apparent sequence of events. We discovered the elephant missing and thought that fact had caused the Maharaja's death. Well, as his murder was quite a separate matter. The poison must have been placed in the eye drops while we were in the elephant house. Precisely, dear chap. And uh, when the murderer saw how the uh, problem of the missing elephant confused us, he killed its unfortunate keeper to prevent us from learning the truth. Yes, you're... Strangely silent, Mr. Singh. Am I, Mr. Holmes? I am fascinated by your flow of unassailable logic. But of course, uh, you realize that I am now the Maharaja, the King of Kings, an absolute ruler with all power, including that of the police. Do you, uh, do you care to denounce the murderer to me? Oh, come, come, sir. It's time the buttons off our foils. I'm well aware that you studied medicine at the University of Edinburgh. That the motive, the opportunity, and the knowledge to kill your brother. The murder of Sucro was probably performed by an underling. Great Scott, what a shocking... You are discreet. a clever man, Mr. Holmes. A very clever man. Clever enough to realize that an absolute ruler, a ruler with all powers, including that of the police, is not apt to denounce himself. Again, your logic is unassailable. Goodbye, gentlemen. I trust your voyage home will be a pleasant one. I warn you, sir, that I shall make a full report of my findings in this case to the British Commissioner. Mistake. Why should he prove more effectual than the great Sherlock Holmes? Goodbye, gentlemen, and above all else. murderer. Makes my blood boil to think that he can't be brought to justice. But he can, and he will be. The civilized laws of the Occident cannot be enforced here. Then we must fight him with his own weapons. What do you mean, Holmes? We have a farewell talk with Mr. Mader, the dead Maharaja's physician, friend, and counselor. But this is a terrible story you have told me, Mr. Holmes. My beloved ruler murdered by his own brother, yet... He cannot be made to account for his crimes. He can be, sir. If you will help, Mr. Holmes. Of course I will. What can I do? Try and obtain the eye drops before they're destroyed, will you? Have them analyzed by a Western scientist and forward the reports to me in London. I'll take the necessary action. I will try to do that, Mr. Holmes. But if I fail, there is one other way I can avenge my master's death. In a few weeks... The new Maharaja will be enthroned. Ah. I understand you, sir. The wise man from beyond the mountains of Nepal will bring a new white elephant. Perhaps an elephant that will not live very long. You understand me perfectly, Mr. Holmes. I can promise you that the elephant will die in a very short time. And with it, 
the new Maharaja. My master shall be avenged. That was quite a story, Doctor. Quite a story. And tell me, what did happen to the next white elephant of Harvard Port? Well, by an extraordinary coincidence, it died the day after the new Maharaja's enthronement. And that scout was himself killed in an uprising that occurred just a few days later. You know something? I think I could be very happy as an Indian Maharaja. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Beautiful palace, yeah. beautiful women, beautiful jewels. <laughs> and every year on my birthday, the natives would give me my weight in gold. Uh, you know, I could learn to like that. That is, if I tried. Yes, and every week you'd speak to your subject over the radio and tell them all about Petri wine. Oh, now, now, wait a minute, Doctor. I don't always talk about Petri wine. <laughs> That's right. You, you don't always talk about Petri wine. You've got to sleep sometime. <laughs> all right, go on. Kid me about it. But Petri wine is worth talking about. After all, what other wine has the tradition behind it that Petri wine has? Don't forget the Petri family has been making Petri wine for generations. Since way back before there were... Electric lights and telephones and things like that. They've been making Petri wine since the 1800s and handing down from father to son, from father to son, every bit of valuable knowledge and experience. There's no doubt about it. The Petri family really knows how to turn luscious grapes into wonderful wine. That's why you can't go wrong with a Petri wine. Petri took time to bring you good wine. Well, Doctor, how's about giving us a clue to next week's story? Well, uh, next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm going to tell you an adventure in which uh, I'm afraid I... <laughs> well, I didn't exactly cover myself with glory, shall we say. But I think you'll find the story an exciting one, my boy, because it's composed of equal parts of romance, of international intrigue, and of sudden death. <laughs> Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure is written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and is based on an incident in the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Engineer's Thumb. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine... of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details